Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Glad you could make it. Adam Andrews here, as usual, joined by my family, the Center for Lit crew, my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Hey. And his wife, Emily. Hello. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Glad you're on board for another edition. It's What Are We Reading This Time? And Emily, you are on the hot seat, so let's jump right to Mm -hmm. it. What are you reading? Well, a couple episodes back, you challenged me to read Catcher in the Rye. I remember that. So I promptly went to the bookstore and found a copy. Not just any copy. It happens to be a first edition. Wow. By the way. Wow. How'd you (laughs) come by that? I don't know. I discovered that for the first time today when I was thumbing through the front cover and saw the date and did a quick Google search and it's the same date that it was published. So that's kind of fun. (laughs) I'll say. Yes. So yeah. And I read it. So you have done it. You have, you have, uh, Risen to the challenge, and you've read Catcher in the Rye, and you're finished, right? You're not in the I middle of it. Okay. Yeah, look at, look at so how I obedient she is. I know. Properly, what are we reading? It's what have I read? What have you recently read? <laughs> I think that's, I mean, let's take note here. Whatever we tell Emily to read, she will go directly to the store and buy it. This is good information. <laughs> Give a complete report of books I should have read but haven't. Just make Emily do it. So uh, I have a question before we get into. Um, your take on Catcher in the Rye and discuss it. Uh, what are the reasons that you had not yet read it at the time of mm. my challenge? Well, that's a really great question because I feel like it's one of those books that every high schooler in America has to read. Uh, at least, I mean, probably not in the Andrews homeschool, but <laughs> in the world at large. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it never... It never came across my desk. It was never assigned to me. And then I went to college and Salinger isn't really hip right now. I did have a professor who assigned nine stories to me, which I enjoyed, um, but not Catcher in the Rye. And so I I just never read it. And I have a friend who really loves J.D. Salinger, but her favorite is Franny and Zooey. And so I read that to talk about it with her. I loved it. I love Franny and Zooey. But for whatever reason, I've never gotten around to the one that he's famous for, Catcher in the Rye. Just an oversight. So you, okay, that's interesting. So you already had read Salinger and had an appreciation for Salinger before reading Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, I did. I I love his stories about the Glass family. It's quirky. He's kind of like the John Green of his own era in some ways. But but maybe darker. a little darker. <laughs> a little darker. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. The first John Green novel I ever read was about a kid dying of cancer uh, well, under the age of 20. So I guess you're right. I guess you're right. There's a little darkness there, too. Well, I bet, Emily, that puts you in elite company, being someone who already knew Salinger before reading Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, I don't know what that means. But I don't either. It, it's backwards. I don't know what it means either. I've never read Salinger. I've never read Salinger well, either. He's not, he's not lauded as one of the greats you know he 
Hemingway loved him and his work, but for whatever reason, he kind of gets relegated to the high school reading list and isn't really considered like one of the canon in maybe, American literature. Maybe as an author, when you consider his whole the whole body of his work, but surely Catcher in the Rye is is recognized as one of the great American novels of the 20th century, right? Well, I think so, yes, which is confusing to me because I actually, to start talking about it, really loved Franny and Zooey way more mm. than I liked Catcher in the Rye. And not to say that I didn't enjoy myself reading it. I, I really did. His style is uh, very fluid and it's really easy to get through. But as a whole, I think Franny and Zooey is better. Mm. Well, you'll, you'll have to give us a quick summary of Franny and Zooey too, but let's, let's start with the great one, the Grand Royale, Catcher in the Rye, which has uh, never been out of print since 1951, sold something like 65 million copies since then. It's been mm-hmm. translated into literally all of the world's major languages, one of the most popular works of serious literature to come out of anywhere in the last 75 years, right? Yeah, in 1969... Catcher in the Rye was the number one most uh, requested book to be banned. Since we were just talking about that in a recent episode. That's right, we did. But it was also the second most taught novel in American public high schools. Simultaneously? Simultaneously, yes. Wow. Very interesting. That's a controversial piece right there. Exactly. There is a school district in our home state of Washington that in 1978 officially banned it. Uh in the liberal state of Washington. Wow. I think that's kind of hmm. amazing. As, as, as recently as 1978. Because oh, it of it. It's awfully blue. It's a little blue. I mean, Okay, I, so Emily, explain this to me because my, my knowledge, this is what I know about Catcher in the Rye, and it's very little. I had a friend in college who was also a lit major who wrote his thesis on Catcher in the Rye. And I was asking him all about it, and I said, I haven't, I haven't ever read that before. Should I read it? And he said, no. And he told me he didn't was, know who he was talking to. He told me it was very dark, and that I wouldn't like it. Yeah, you wouldn't like it. So, I ask you, should I read it? Okay, I disagree that it's ultimately dark, but it. Okay, the reasons that it would have been requested to be banned are these: it's very heavy on the swearing. Um, it's it's a little antiquated, which makes it kind of quaint now. <laughs> and funny. <laughs> That's quaint some swearing, quaint swearing right there. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it still is. It's very heavy on the swearing. Um, there are prostitutes and there are sexual jokes. It's, it's a first person narration from a teenager who has just been kicked out of his boarding school. This is the fourth time that he's been kicked out of a boarding school. And it's his interior monologue as he goes about in the world trying to figure out what he's going to do about this, avoiding going home for Christmas because he just really would rather not confront his parents about this one more time. And he gets into a lot of risque situations. He can easily pass for an older boy than he is because he has gray hair. So he goes to nightclubs and there's drinking and there's nefarious activities. And so I can see why someone would be concerned about handing this to their high schoolers, which is where, oddly enough, it ends up most often. <laughs> wow. Is it because it's about a high schooler? Is that why English well, department? So. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the first person narration of a high schooler who's confronting the duplicity of the world um, and is starting to see the way as a grown up with eyes to see that 
there's a lot of hypocrisy in the world and that um, people aren't the way that they would like to be perceived that he's basically getting an eyeful of the human condition as he walks around and so it's kind of it's a coming of age novel in that way with a dark kind of cast as somebody comes of age and to the realization that all is not what it seems and that people are essentially pretentious liars but oddly enough he starts the novel that way he's holden caulfield the protagonist is extremely cynical and very sharp and very perceptive and sees all the ways that his friends and his teachers and his girlfriends are uh, being phonies is what he calls them. Everyone is a phony. Everyone is faking it. And there's no genuineness in the world. Does that hold true throughout the entire narration? Or does he discover otherwise? Well, so I thought that I was being super brilliant because I was like, oh, this kind of reminds me of Huckleberry Finn. And wow, I bet no one's ever made that connection before. And I was completely wrong. It makes that connection, it turns out, <laughs> as I did my research. So not an original thought, which is not unusual. Well, that but, doesn't uh, matter. It doesn't brilliant. mean it's not profound, right? <laughs> well, it, it it's similar. He is set apart in the same way that Huckleberry Finn was set apart as the kind of the picture of, of innocence who hasn't been... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Civilized? Uh, yeah, he hasn't been civilized. He hasn't been stained by civilization. He's he's set apart in that way. Holden Caulfield kind of is too. He's set apart from his modern civilization. And so it's not necessarily church going or uh, the rules of society or anything that's holding him back, but rather it's everyone's desire to make something of themselves and to be perceived in a certain way. And he and doesn't he share is, that desire? Is that the thing? He doesn't. Yeah, and he 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 reviles that desire and is doing everything he can to to be his own person and figure out what is what's true in the world. And so he he rebels in this way, but over the course of the story, um he's always remembering his sister Phoebe, who is always she's always kind of an anchor point in his life and he has a very tragic history it turns out. And I'm I am going to be giving stuff away about the novel some spoiler which, spoiler alert yeah which and you know it is supposedly one of the most read novels so hopefully that's <laughs> ian is covering his ears because he doesn't want to hear me say anything <laughs> okay and you okay. gotta do some reading this is like the second episode in a row where you've had to cover your ears because you're not caught up he can't hear you he's not listening he's literally not listening anyway i'll be i'll be quick it comes out over the course of the novel that he has a very tragic family history his his younger brother, whom he loved very, very much, Ali, died uh, tragically young. And he's still, we come to understand, uh, having some post-traumatic stress syndrome with that and still dealing with it. His older brother, D.B., is a very talented story writer. But he kind of sold out and went west to Hollywood. And this is also being phony, according to Holden. And his parents are partiers and they're not really involved. Um, they're wealthy and there's not really an anchor in the story, except for his littlest sister, Phoebe, who is still quite young. She's a, an elementary aged girl. And he, Phoebe kills him, which is his way of saying that she's the greatest. Everything that she does is great. She's spontaneous. She uh, is full of joy and, and she's genuine. 
and he always all he wants to do is to go back and talk to her if he can avoid he doesn't want to talk to his parents but he wants to sneak in and talk to her and so she is kind of this juxtaposition with the rest of the things that he encounters and by the end of the novel he like Huckleberry Finn decides that he's going to go west and he's going to go live the American dream out west he's going to become a new person uh, start a new life where no one knows him and have this new American western identity but when he goes to talk to his sister he finally gets to her and she begs him not to go and so he doesn't go and that's the major change in the novel is unlike Huckleberry Finn who had who lit out west for the territories he chooses to stay home uh, with his sister presumably because she is what he has been looking for all along so there is an odd change there even an optimistic one maybe i mean doesn't he end the novel by by guessing or or thinking about what he'll do next with sort of some something like a hopeful tone of voice yeah uh he he got this advice from a teacher and it ends up being kind of twisted but he's going to set out with purpose to make something of himself and and to search for what is true which ends up being what he believes he's good for is is searching for the truth hmm. so emily you are famous among center for lit crew members for seeing the um the positive hopeful implications of really negative dark <laughs> stories you're the one who guides us when it comes to james joyce for example so um, I want you to give in a sentence or two your spin on the message of, or the, the, the overarching theme of Catcher in the Rye. So J.D. Salinger was a super weird person. He explored a lot of different religions, quote unquote, over the course of his life. Buddhism, he was a yogi for a while. Uh, he was Sweet. involved in the early stages of Scientology. <laughs> he, and, but his wife says that he, he changed religions every year. Like he, he was searching. He was constantly on the search for something. He was born Jewish. His parents were both devout Jews, but he left that faith. And so I can see the same thing, that same search in Holden, the same coming up against things in the world that appear phony and that don't really stand up, but still having that instinctive knowledge that there is something to be found and that that's worth the search. Hmm. And so by the end of the novel, I don't think that Holden has found it, but if there's anything that he's found, it's this innocence in his younger sister and the fact that she's too young to want to be duplicitous or feel like she needs to be something else. One of the other things he discovers is that he himself is also a phony. He says several times, I did this crazy thing. I don't know why I did it. When I get this way, I just become a phony person. Uh -huh. so, so he sees in himself the same condition that he sees around him, um, which is true. Mm. He, he, isn't, he isn't the innocent figure like Huckleberry Finn, but uh, he shares in the same problem that he sees around him. Interesting. One of the, the, uh, if you, if you were to ask 10 teachers what the main theme of 
Catcher in the Rye is, or maybe ask 10 readers what the main theme of Catcher in the Rye, or 10 movie producers, alienation would be on half of their lips. You would, I mean, the, the average observer walking down the street, Catcher in the Rye is about alienation. That's the main theme. Um, respond to that assertion, that the main theme of Catcher in the Rye is alienation. Tell us what what people mean by that, and whether you think that's uh, presented in the story as a, a problem to be overcome or some sort of, of stability for Holden Caulfield? Or what, what about alienation and Catcher in the Rye? Well, I do think that's the major problem, and that's the modern problem, and that's why it's in a first-person narration, because he's stuck inside of his own head. And that was the big modern problem, trying to connect with other people in a world where you can't know what's true. But for Holden, I think that it's not all gone, that he is alienated and he does have problems connecting with people, except for by the end, he has reconnected with his sister in such a way that he chooses to stay with her. So there must be some kind of solution there. Maybe it's not a whole one or a satisfying one, but there's enough of a tug there mm. in the family and in, in his friendship with his sister that keeps him rooted where he is instead of set off wandering. So you would even say that, that in your reading of the novel, alienation is one of the main problems that is presented as a problem. That Holden Caulfield isn't necessarily the apostle of alienation but he is one of its victims. Is that fair? Well, yeah. And he shares, I, I think he sees a lot of people who are alienated from one another because they're all trying to be something or make something or, or they're being phony or broken in some way, but he shares in that too. And so there is a fellowship in that, but he does say at the very end, now that I think about it, uh, one of his last lines is, Let's see if I can find it. Um, he's He decides to write the story. That's the ending of the story. But um, he says, I don't know what I think about it, talking about this, everything that he's written. I'm sorry I told so many people about it. About all I know is I sort of miss everybody I told about, even old Stradladder and Ackley, for instance. I think I even miss Maurice. It's funny. Don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. And so Stradladder and Ackley were two of his classmates that we meet at the beginning of the novel who he's friends with, but they're, they have so many quirks and they're super annoying and they're phonies too. And Maurice was the, uh, the pimp who prostituted someone out to him. Wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so his final word is that even though there are all these horrible things he's told us about that he misses these people. So even in spite of the things that drive him away from people, there are still these connections that drive him back to people. So mm. there's, there's a tension there. Mm -hmm. So would you say that he finds um, the solution to hypocrisy in real relationship? No, because there's not necessarily real relationship happening there, except for maybe with, with uh, Phoebe, mm -hmm. but um, so does it, yeah. does it major more in problems than in solutions? Maybe, but there is, uh, even if there isn't relationship, there is kind of a, a fellowship of sufferers mm -hmm. that he, he recognizes, um, even though 
this stinks. And even though uh, being a human being is really difficult, that it's where he belongs. And that it would be wrong. It would be wrong to remove himself from it. It would be wrong to go out west and go where nobody knows him. Even though that's what he desperately wants, he belongs in this mess. Hmm. Does he really see um, the West as a solution to the problem? Holden, well, you he mean? Did. He does. Yeah. For a while, he does. Yes. But he sees that. I think that is like the ultimate isolation. He wants to go. He even thinks about when he goes out West, uh, pretending to be deaf and dumb so that no one can talk to him. And he's just going to pump gas and no one's going to be able to talk with him. So he would just be completely alone. Just rejecting the human, um, the human community entirely. Mm -hmm. But that's not life by the end of the novel. Well, it's interesting too, because you've said that um, he recognizes that he is phony too. And that would be phony Mm -hmm. to pretend that he was deaf and dumb. And probably unsuccessful. I mean, as I'm just sitting here thinking about it, how would that work? Would that really work? Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, wherever you go, there you are. And he'd take himself yep. with, with him and wouldn't be able to evade the phoniness in himself um, because it would be necessary in order to accomplish what he's talking about there. Right. That's an interesting conundrum he sets up. One of the charges I've heard leveled against this novel by um, by readers and teachers and parents is that the alienation that's you've been talking about that's a theme is uh, is advocated that the that the novel seems to advocate a a loner mentality and to um to support the teenage um self-centered teenage worldview of um of being a loner and rejecting relationship and connection and to advocate that as a as a solution to the problem of life but it doesn't sound like your reading of the of the novel supports that interpretation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I see where that's coming from, but the things that Holden experiences are things that I think every teenager does, whether you introduce this book to them or not. And if anything, he the things he sees are true, that it is super phony and bogus that these classmates of his are, are treating women the way they do and are, uh, are beating each other up and, and beating their own chests and he sees a lot of things clearly and so what do you do about that um and it should be encouraging that what he chooses to do about that is to stay home Hmm. i knew it i knew you were going to give us that kind of reading of catcher in the rye emily (laughs) i mean i don't want to make i don't want to lie about it it is dark and it's very cynical and I, I have that in myself, and so maybe I'm, I'm given to make light of it. But I thought it was a good read. Hmm. It, are there any? Um, okay, so I'm I'm speaking as a parent here. Are there any good adult figures in the story? No. See, that feels problematic to me. How come? I, Sounds pretty true to life. Really? In real life, there are no um, adults that are authentic? That's not what you said. You said, are there any good adults in the story? Okay, well, let me rephrase. Are there any adults in the story that he would categorize or catalog with his sister, Phoebe, as authentic? 
because that's yeah, the good in the story, right? Authentic, being authentic is the greatest good. Yeah. The adults are super complex. The ones that he actually has relationships with. There's a teacher at the beginning of the novel who uh, really cares about him and is always inviting him to his house. And Holden feels like he needs to say goodbye before he leaves the school, but he goes and this guy is really old and he's sick and kind of gross and uh, wants to pontificate to Holden and, and Holden doesn't enjoy any of that on the one hand. And on the other hand, his wife makes cookies for him and they take care of him and clearly he cares and maybe he's bought into some of the lies of the school, but he still is there for Holden and Holden feels like he should have said goodbye and he does. And then there's a teacher at the end of the story who gives the most solid advice to Holden that we've heard the whole novel. And then there's a weird experience between the two of them that I won't go into a lot, but that kind of questions this guy's motives. And so they're complex. The adults in the the story are. Hmm. See, I guess. That might be the source of the, of the book's negative reputation among maybe maybe grown-ups i don't know i mean I, I don't it know does... that he wrote this for the audience that is it is given to the most so just because it, it's got a teenage main character doesn't mean it's written for teenagers huckleberry finn wasn't yeah well right. that's what i was going to say is huckleberry finn um you know huck is he's basically a noble savage in the story and it sounds like you you mentioned that he was much like huckleberry finn in in this Except that he sees in himself the same phoniness that he sees in others. And I don't mm-hmm. know, does Huckleberry Finn ever um, come to that kind of self-knowledge? I think he really no. does. No, it's one of, my, one of my own pet peeves with Huck Finn as a novel is that the main character is anything but realistic. So it sounds pretty hopeful to me that as you represent him, he comes to some sort of terms with the fact that this affliction he sees in the people all around him, he suffers from he too. He shares it. Mm-hmm. That seems like a positive, or at least it's the beginning of a solution. Yeah, I think so. Does this, does this um, warrant including it on a book list? Uh... Uh, I mean, for all the reasons I've said, maybe not for for our high schoolers, except for maybe seniors, I don't know, those who are, are mature enough to handle it. But for adults, yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, it's it's one of the American canon that, that other people have read. It's probably worth it to be versed mm-hmm. in it. And um, although I will say... If you're going to read Catcher in the Rye, you should read Franny and Zooey as well. I was going to instead. <laughs> I was going instead. to ask you to give us a super quick summary of Franny and Zooey by way of comparison. How is it that what goes on in that story? How is it also clearly a work of Salinger? And then how what makes you think it's better? Um, so Salinger, the, these themes of uh, hypocrisy and the, the humans' desire to to behave in ridiculous ways to make much of themselves that that's all throughout his work and the ways that that breaks people and leaves them broken is in nine stories and it's also in Franny and Zooey and Franny and Zooey are part of the glass family 
stories that he wrote. Um, the oldest of the Glass family was Seymour in A Good Day for Banana Fish. Is that the name of the short story? But anyway, though Franny and Zuri are his younger siblings and the story covers their relationship together. Not a ton happens except for that we know Zui uh, is having a lot of trouble. I think Zui's the girl. She's having a ton of trouble at school. Maybe Franny's the girl. It's been a while since I read this, but um, for the same reasons. And she's disenchanted with the things that she's encountering at school uh, and the way that people are behaving. And she's wondering where the, the genuine is in the world. And the thing that she keeps coming back to is this mantra that she can't get out of her mind and her brother thinks is kind of ridiculous and kind of pities her for hanging on to this. And she doesn't really necessarily believe the mantra, but it's really comforting to her. And the mantra is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mm. Wow. So that's Franny and Zooey. <laughs> is, it, is it delivered ironically? At first, it seems like it is, but by the end, you have to... You actually have to wrestle with it because it really does bring her comfort. So would you, would you say that that the use of the, of the Christian symbol, the Christian text is different in Salinger's hands than it, than it was in say Hemingway's with the Christological imagery of the old man in the sea or the clean, well-lighted place or stories like that? Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to say. I probably have to read it again, but I left it with the sense that while well, on the one hand, it can be one of the things that is phony. On the other hand, what if it's true? Or what if, what if there is something greater? It may not be Jesus Christ, but there is something greater out there that we're all a part of. Mm. So you'd put Salinger's work squarely in the 20th century intellectual tradition as opposed to the 19th then, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Most definitely. He also had no idea. He was a major recluse, and he gave his last interview in 1980, but he didn't die until 2010. Hmm. I had no idea. He wrote, during that time, he wrote a lot of stories that haven't been published yet, and his estate is planning to release them eventually. Interesting. So he went uh, 30 years, ended his life with 30 years of radio silence? Yeah, he, he was. Uh, it said that he believed that it was more fun to write for himself in private, and he didn't really want to share it with anyone. And so he wrote a lot, but it was just for himself. Did he live alone? He was married a couple times, but I don't know. He has children. Hmm. Interesting. So you would prefer Franny and Zui for the, the explicit hopefulness of that mantra over the, over the implied hopefulness maybe that you find in Catcher in the Rye? I'd say they're both about the same amount of implied hopefulness where it could really go either way. But I think I like Franny and Zui because the questions there are, I mean, obviously I, I relate to them more and I think that it's a little more in your face making you wrestle with that statement. It's repeated so many times. Mm -hmm. So um, Ian and Missy, you have not read the novel. Based on Emily's take, are you more likely or less likely to read it now? I'm planning on reading it. 
which is why you can't really speak to what dad said because you had your fingers in your ears the whole time. You have no idea what your wife said. <laughs> Our listeners are very familiar with my distaste for spoilers. They, they know. This is what, the third episode where I've plugged my ears for the majority That's of That's why I said you've got to get to reading. Me. <laughs> Missy, what about you? Because you, I know you very well as a as a reader and a purveyor of books and a pl- flag planter on issues of books stepping over various lines. What is your What is your uh, feeling towards Catcher in the Rye? Given this this summer, summation, um, I I wouldn't be averse to reading it myself. I would never put it on a student book list with this. After what Emily has told me, I can't imagine that anybody put it on a high school reading list after what she said. But you know, I think it's really difficult to judge a book you've never read yourself. I don't think it's appropriate. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to read every single thing because of the making of books. There is no end. I mean, I have to make decisions. So I can't promise that I'm going to read Salinger. I, I will admit that he's not at the top of my reading list. Um, I may read him before before I kick the can. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's possible. I may read him. but It's bucket. But I may not. There's actually, before we end, I actually want you guys to help me think about the title because it's The Catcher in the Rye, and I had no idea. You know, it gets mixed up in my head with things like Grapes of Wrath and like Mice and Men. There's just those American titles that don't really mean anything. <laughs> it's, the, it's a reference to the Robert Burns poem, right? If a body catch yeah. a body coming through the rye. Exactly. If a body catch a body coming through the rye. And the first time Holden hears this is he hears a little boy singing it uh, on the steps of the mm-hmm. museum. And he's delighted and taken with the little boy. Every time there are children in the story, Holden is completely delighted with them. Um, and so later on, Holden is talking about what he might want to do when he grows up and he wants to be a catcher in the rye. He, he imagines what this poem means is that there's a great big field of rye. And there are a ton of children playing in it. And, but there's one person who's sitting on the edge of a cliff or, or some kind of dangerous. The environment. field is on the edge of a cliff, I think, right? Yeah. And his job as the catcher in the rye is to grab children who are about to go over the edge and keep them in the field. Grab rye. them by the body, as it were. Yeah. And so I think that's super interesting. Holden, as someone who sees the cliff, who sees all the dangers that adulthood brings, but he wants to be the one to shove them back. To, to preserve innocence in some way. Yeah, yeah preserve like some innocence. kind of preserver of innocence. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Intriguing because of what you've said about his book being on the, the list of banned books as not appropriate for innocence. Right. Mm-hmm. Real life catchers in the rye have banned it so yeah, as to keep yeah. kids in the field. Yeah. Also, the this makes me want to read it more. Also, the switcheroo at the end, if uh, if what it really happens to Holden is that he's saved, as it were, by a child and convinced mm-hmm. not to wall himself off in alienation, but to stay and relate where he belongs. He's a, he's in effect been caught, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that he does really well is make the seediness of it very seedy. It is rather disgusting. And so maybe for an adult, it's a longing for a return to innocence. Mm -hmm. How about you? Are you going to read it? Me? Yeah. Yes. Um, I actually read it once uh, very long ago, so long ago that I've forgotten most of it. It's hard to imagine, given the um, lurid content, 
that uh, I forgot it. I must have given. I must have been assigned it and and read it really fast or something. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't actually say that I've read and digested it. So I'm definitely going to. Did you read it in Dr. King's class? Maybe. Freshman year. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was on a book list. Or or maybe that was Slaughterhouse Five. I don't remember. I think that was on that book list too. Yeah, kind of a seedy book list. Come to think of it. A lot of well, that <laughs> uh, was the Americans for? his specialty. I think the Americans were his. He was a specialist in American literature. Well, I actually think that um, it sounds like Salinger provides a uh, a riff, another riff on the um, the Hemingway Fitzgerald take of the first half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Another look at um, the modern world through the eyes of modernism that might mm-hmm. be fun to compare with those other yeah. two. Yeah, I think he has the same disillusionments mm-hmm. that Fitzgerald does, but instead of Hemingway creates the, uh, what is it, courage in the face of, mm-hmm. uh, what does he call it? Grace um, under pressure or whatever Grace it is. Grace under pressure, yeah. yeah. Instead of that, uh, well, maybe it partakes of that, but Salinger's response seems to be a return to innocence mm-hmm. or um, a, the continuing of the search for the greater meaning in the world. And, and even if you can't find it, the belief that it's there. So it comes out 10 years before Harper Lee, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, also written by a famous recluse, which seems mm-hmm. to touch on some of the same themes, or at least the same problems, the problem of alienation of the distance between people and the necessity of forging some sort of basis for a connection. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's clearly one of the main themes of the century in terms of American intellectual life. Yeah. I, and I think it's interesting that both of those authors, whereas many who came before him were pro go West young man, go isolate yourself and maybe you'll have a chance to start new. Mm-hmm. These authors in the next century tend to be more for solving the problem where mm. you are. That is very interesting. Perhaps because the West had been tried or various things that the, that the go West idea symbolizes had been tried by the time of World War One and World War II. Well, yeah, Holden, the brother DB, is in the West. Mm-hmm. He's in Hollywood, and that is one of the big representatives of everything that is false and phony, in mm-hmm. his view. Interesting. So the West is already ruined for him in some ways. Yeah. Wonder how. I wonder how aware, and I'm sure people have written on this before. I wonder how aware Walker Percy was of The Catcher in the Rye when he wrote The Movie Goer. What makes you say that, Ian? Just because the search for something ineffable that validates the human experience and uh, and makes us real to ourselves and to one another seems to be very much a question uh, for Walker Percy as well. The moviegoer is all about a hunt like that. Mm. Um, and and I've, having read the moviegoer, I'm really intrigued by Catcher in the Rye. I mean, it's it's 10 years later. It's 1961. And so with a decade betwixt them, an important decade betwixt them, It'd be really interesting to contrast their views, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually really similar to it. Well, let's go read it and see what we think. Maybe we'll have another episode where the three of us chime in and either validate or question Emily's reading. We can maybe throw some brick bats <laughs> and have all kinds of arguments. <laughs> I'm always down for a brick bat or two. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> Mom, you are too, I know. What well, is a brick know. bat? Anyway. I don't know. Great word, though. 
Uh, well, Emily, thank you. Well done. Thanks for bringing the goods and uh, giving us the guided tour. We will go um, read it based on your suggestions and see what we think. And thanks to all of you for listening to another edition of Bibliophiles. If you enjoy this episode, please go find the other ones in iTunes and Stitcher or wherever it is you get your podcast content. Give us a rate if you don't mind. We'd love to hear what you think. And finally, go to all our websites and check and see all of the wonderful things we're doing. Centerforlit.com, pelicansociety.com. We would love to see you inside. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>